0: meet at the Belleville Cracker Barrel, just at 94 and Belleville Road, uh, 7 o'clock, and then proceed from there, and the canoeing starts, I think, at 845 in in Ann Arbor. If for some reason you want to just go straight to the canoeing, and you can't make it or don't want to make it to the uh, breakfast, then see Rich Carrico about uh, the location of the canoeing, and I'm sure we can just meet you there. If you don't know who Rich is, go to the information center, and they can put you in touch with, with him. And then on the 2nd of September, just a few weeks, though, on a Wednesday night, we're going to have a CPR training class. That's mentioned in your program also. And we really encourage two groups of people to be a part of that. One is our children's volunteers, but also our security team volunteers. So if you are on either of those, we encourage you to mark that off September the 2nd in the evening to attend that CPR training. It's from 6 to 9. It's three hours of training in the CPR, and then any of the rest of you who would like to get that training, of course, you're welcome to come. There's no charge for it. On Labor Day, the 7th of September is our annual Labor Day picnic. It will again be at the Lake Erie Metro Park, and that'll start at noon, so mark your calendars for that. And then a little bit longer range, two more things, at the end of September, September 20th, Sunday, September 20th, we are going to have a fire drill. Uh, we did that, for those of you who are with us, probably about five years ago, maybe more than that, when we were at Woodhaven High School. Our security team put together an emergency drill at the end of the Discovering God Hour so that in case there was an emergency that required us to evacuate, everybody would know what to do at that building. Well, now we're at this building, and we've got a bunch of different exits, and we want to make sure that everybody knows what they should do in the event that uh, heaven forbid there would be that requirement to evacuate. So on the 20th, September 20th, at the end, the final 15 minutes, 1145, we will have that, uh, that uh, practice run, fire drill evacuation. So we'll uh, make you aware of that as the time approaches. And lastly, on September the 27th, during this hour, we will start a several weeks long series on marriage in this room called Marriage Matters. So if marriage matters to you, or if, you are, if your marriage still matters to you, then I encourage you to show up. If you're not married, but you uh, think you might be in the future, and you want to know what uh, the Bible says about that, I would encourage you to attend as well. But we know that there are folks uh, who, for various stations in life, are not going to be interested in the marriage class. So we're offering a second class simultaneous with that. And Dr. Combs is going to be teaching how we got our Bible, how we got our Bible, where the Bible came from, how it was transmitted to us, all of that. And uh, he'll be doing that during that 11 o'clock hour for those weeks that we'll be having the, the marriage series. That class will meet in the impact zone, which is the south part of our building. There's a large room there because we anticipate there'll be a decent number of folks who will, uh, who will want to take that class. All right, if you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 13. We left off there last week in our series called Mind Games. And I remind you a little bit about where we've been in this series. I started by making the case, the claim, and then I think making the case, that the Christian life is about change. The Christian life requires change. In order for the Christian life to be lived... As it's described in the Bible, change is expected biblically to be a regular part of the Christian's experience. That you and I, as we follow Christ, should be gradually and, and regularly being conformed to the image of Christ. That's the end game of the sanctification process. That is the process whereby we are gradually set apart. That's what sanctify means. We are gradually set apart from the world and to God. And the end of that process will ultimately be that we are like Christ. Now, this side of heaven, you will not be perfectly like Christ, but you should be and I should be progressing in Christ's likeness uh, while I serve him and in the days that he he gives us on earth. And then that process will end with what the Bible calls being glorified. And the Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2 that when we uh, see him, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. So we will be like him and we will be transformed, we will be translated, we will be glorified so that we are like Christ. But in the meantime, we're to be becoming like Christ. Gradually and regularly. So the Christian life is about change. It starts with a radical change of your allegiances and your values, from allegiances and values that are given to given to the world. And we come into this world, our leader, it's very harsh to say, but it is true biblically, that our leader is actually Satan, not God. And that is who our father is. You are of your father, the devil, Jesus Jesus said. And so we are moved from one family to another family, into God's family when we're converted, when we're born again, when we come to Christ. So there's that radical change that it begins with and then changes to continue throughout the whole of the the Christian's life. Now, that all being said, the sad part of all of that is that change happens all too little in the lives of most Christians. Change is to be a regular part of the Christian life, I should be able to say this year that I am more like Jesus than I was last year. And you should be as well. But my observation is that change takes place all too little. Now, part of the reason it takes place too little is because we don't think that change is necessary, despite the fact that I just told you it is, and despite the fact that I have preached and taught that a good bit a number of times. More importantly, the Bible teaches that. But we don't think change is necessary, and here's part of the reason. Because for us, the only thing that matters is I'm going to heaven. And if the Bible teaches something called eternal security, and it does, then I already know I'm going to heaven, so who cares if I change? I mean, that's kind of the attitude that some Christians have. I'm already going to heaven, so I don't really need to change. And then when I get to the end of this, I'm going to be glorified anyway. That'll be the ultimate change into the image of Christ, so why should I bother with being changed now? I'm going to heaven. Praise the Lord. And that's all that matters. That's a false view of the Christian life, and it's a false view of the purpose for which God has us here. Hear this. God does not have us here for your salvation. Huh. God does not have us on earth for our salvation. God has us on earth for His glory. And our salvation is one of the means of achieving that glory. And that glory is only achieved in our salvation as we become more and more like him. So that gradual process has got to be happening in our lives if we indeed are going to achieve the purpose for which God has placed us here as creatures and then saved us as his children. But many people don't think it's necessary for the reasons I gave and some don't think it's possible. We have the cynical view that we've adopted over the years because we've seen so many people who don't change. We say people don't change. And if you're a Christian, you can't, I mean you can, but you shouldn't say that. (laughs) And you certainly shouldn't believe that, that people don't change. Listen, brothers and sisters, friends, if people don't change, I really should quit this whole thing and get an honest job. Because this whole thing is about change. It's about changing sinners to saints. It's about changing saints gradually into the image of of Christ. And progressively into the image of Christ. But we say things like you can't teach old dogs new tricks. People don't change. And as you've heard me say, we're not talking about dogs and we're not talking about tricks. We're talking about people made in the image of God. And we're talking about the all-important sanctification process. So, a series like this that focuses on our minds is needed because it is not only a part of the change process, it is actually a root portion of the change process. Even when change is pursued by a Christian, very often it is pursued in superficial ways that do not include things like our thoughts. It's pursued externally. In a conforming kind of way. I hang around with this group of Christians. I conform to the standards that are understood amongst the group. And if I do that, then I'm not like the people in the world and that's good enough for me. So the group kind of sets the standards. Now here's the danger with that. One, God is the one who sets the standards. So it's a false standard. And the other thing is it's a dangerous standard. Because if then your group... Begins to tolerate measures of sin, if they're the measure by which you believe you are to be evaluated, then you will conform to that. If you have a group in the church who decided it's okay to gossip, well, gossip can't be that bad then, because we're doing it, you know, and we're us. And so if, if the group is the standard, rather than the word of God being the standard, then you'll end up following the group. That's what many Christians do. It's why you see so much, frankly, hypocrisy within the church. So when change is pursued, and it's not very often, but when it is, it's external, it's shallow, it's conformity to the group's standards. And thoughts, the way we use our minds, are an untapped area of the sanctification process. You rarely hear preaching and teaching and people thinking about their thinking. And yet the Bible has a lot to say about our minds and our thinking. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. We're not to be, excuse me, verse 2. We're not to be conformed to this world, but we are to be transformed... By, you all remember, the renewing of your minds. Transformed by the renewing of our, our minds. Second Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5. Second Corinthians 10, 5. Paul says that his objective is that he and those he ministers to will, quote, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. One of the churchy words that many of us are familiar with is the word repentance we hear the word repentance but let's take just a moment to make sure we understand what that means the the word repentance the greek word that's translated repentance in our bibles is a compound of two greek words meta and noia now nous is the greek word for mind and meta means change so like metamorphosis means change morphe, change form. So meta means change, and nous, noia, means mind. And so repentance is a change of mind. And I always add that it's a change of mind, though biblically, that leads to a change of life. So it's not just a decision one makes in a moment in the past, and then there's nothing that happens experientially out of that. It's a change of mind about ourselves, about God, about sin, and about others that leads then to a change of life. But notice repentance, which is required in order to be saved. And then should be an ongoing thing in the life of the believer. John Calvin called the Christian life the race of repentance. A race of repentance, a race of Recognizing things, recognizing, rethinking about things, about ourselves, about God, as we grow in Christ, learning more from his word. So the Bible has a lot to say about this area of the mind and how we think and bringing our thoughts captive and renewing our minds. So there is such a thing, friends, as intellectual sin. There is such a thing as sinning in the way you think. Sin is not just in the external stuff. Sin is in the internal stuff. And the internal stuff is actually what gives rise to the external stuff. It is what I think that gives rise to what I say and what I do. So God is not interested in just sin management. Sin management means, you know, just keep it under wraps, okay? Can you just hold your temper together like when you're with the church folks, okay? Can you just bite your tongue so you don't embarrass me in front of people? And that's about as far as we go with it. We're managing our sin, sin management. Cover the the real stuff that goes on about us that has its roots in the way we think. And that's what then gives rise to the way we talk and what we do. God's not interested in just sin management. Listen to this. God is interested in sin eradication. Eradication, that is, get to the root to eradicate. Kill sin. The Puritans talked about mortifying sin. Killing, that's mortifying means, you know, making it dead. <laughs> but that's a battle that will go on for the rest of our lives, this, this side of heaven. But it is one in which we must engage and which includes the area of our thoughts, our minds. I say the Bible has much to say about it. I've given you some examples of that. Repentance has at its very center a change of mind that leads to a change of life. You have Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. Hebrews 4.12, the the word of God is alive and it is powerful and it is sharper than any double-edged sword. And it goes on to say that the word of God is able to reveal and discern the thoughts. Do you guys remember the thoughts and intents of the heart? The thoughts of the heart. God cares about. So how I think matters. The mind games matter. And the mind games give rise to the other things that we assume matter because they're external and people see them and I don't want to be embarrassed by that. But what underlies what we say and what we do matters because it's the source of that and God sees all of it. God sees every thought that you and I have. So I need to think about my thinking. The mind is part of this sanctification process. And I need to and, and how I think about myself will then result in how I think about God and how I think about other people. How I think about myself will drastically affect how I think about God and how I think about other people. Now let me Give you an example. Illustrate that. If I think highly of myself, if you were here in the first hour, we had on the screen as one of our passages, Romans 12 and verse 3, let none of you think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Now, why does the Bible warn? Don't think too highly of yourself. I've, I've never, I'm, I'm trying to think. Is there a verse in the Bible that says, Hey, be careful that you don't think too low of yourself. Nope. I'm scanning the whole thing right now. Nope. I mean, even at places where you think, you know, God might say, Hey, you're thinking too low of yourself. It doesn't do that. You know, you got Isaiah chapter (laughs) 6. You guys remember that? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And then every time I quote Isaiah 6 and verse 1, I always ask, so what's important about the year King Uzziah died? And the answer is nothing unless your name's Uzziah. Okay? (laughs) Thank you. Uh, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And then... Isaiah sees this vision of the seraphim that are flying around him. And they are calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You all remember that? So he has this majestic vision of God. And then it goes on to tell us that here's Isaiah's reaction to that. His reaction is to say of himself, woe is me. I see the holy character of God. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. I mean, he's just wallowing in his woe. And you would think that God would say to him, Hey, haven't you heard Joel Osteen? Isaiah, get a grip. You can do it. Be a champion for Jesus. Think positive thoughts. You're thinking way too low of yourself. To my knowledge, God never says that. Because biblically, the way we ought to think about ourselves is this. If you wake up tomorrow and you're not in hell, you got more than you deserved. You wake up tomorrow and you're not in hell. You've got more than you deserved. So the danger is not in thinking too low. The danger is in thinking too high. Now, if I think too high, which means I deserve more than I've got, that's going to affect how I view others and how I view God. If I deserve a different deal, If I deserve a different set of circumstances, if I deserved better than this spouse you gave me. It all starts with how I think of myself more highly than I ought to think. I deserve better and that affects how I view God. God does not have my best interest at heart because God didn't come through. God didn't supply. And it affects how I view you. Because you're not coming through either. I said in the first hour that one of the effects of sin is that it separates people from each other. And people become tools for me to get what I want. And if I think highly of myself, I deserve more, then you're a tool for me to get what I want. And if I'm not getting what I want, then you're a useless tool. So, you've heard me give the anatomy of an idol and how it manifests itself. But let me give that to you again. An idol starts in my heart with what I want. And so it starts with, I want. And I want whatever it is. And the whatever it is, is not necessarily, and in fact, most often for us, is not illicit. The thing I want is neutral. I want respect, I want comfort. you know I, 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 want, um, I want security. I, these are neutral things. they're not bad. they're not certainly not inherently evil, but I want something. And the more I think about that, it's very easy for that desire, that want to move to a need. Not only do I want this, you know, the more I think about it, this should fit on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I need this in order to be fully self-actualized, okay? So for me to fully serve Jesus, not only do I want this, I need this. As I think about that long enough, then, if I really need this in order to become all that I can for Jesus, then I must have this. I want, I need, I must. And then, you know, there are then who's going to, who plays a role in making sure I get whatever that is? Well, that's where tools come in. (laughs) Tools like you guys, tools like the people that God has placed in my circle of relationship. And if God's a good God, and I assume He is, then He'll make sure that I get these things that I must have. And if he's put you in my path, then presumably you're supposed to supply this. So here's the fourth thing. I want, I need, I must, you should. But the you should piece happens in the recesses of my mind. I don't often communicate that to you. I mean, you should know that you should. I'm just expecting you to understand your role in God's economy. Which, I I shouldn't have to say, but is obviously making sure I get the stuff that I need. That's why I married you. That's why we're church members together. That's why we work together. That's why we're siblings. That's why we're friends. So, if I must have this, then you should provide it. But for the person who thinks highly of him or herself, often their demands are more than others can meet. And so you have the fifth thing. You didn't. You failed. You know, I, I want, no, actually I need, really I must. You should But here's the problem. You didn't. So, what kind of useless tool are you? You haven't performed your function. And the sixth thing is this then you'll pay. You'll pay. I'm ticked at you. I'm mad at you. I'm mad at life. I'm mad ultimately at God because God gave me you (laughs) and other people who didn't come through. And I want you to notice that all of this begins with how I think about myself. I deserve. Do you all know how many times over the years I've had people come in for counsel? (laughs) That at the root of what we're talking about is they have a complaint. I mean, counseling sessions could be labeled that. My office, from time to time, could be labeled the complaint department. Okay? And so the individual is complaining about what they deserve and didn't get. And then, you know, I listen and then I say, you know, if you wake up and you're not in hell, how's that? And they say, that doesn't make me feel any better. Your job is to make me feel better. And you should be forewarned that when you come to me for counsel, I do not consider my objective to make you feel better. Now, I should qualify that. If you've had something done to you, you've had a tragedy occur, obviously comfort is what we want to provide. But I'm talking about your own sin struggles. And I don't want you coming away feeling better about that. I want you coming away seeing that clearly for the idolatry of the heart that it is. Now, that being the case, then it affects how or whether I love people. Because if I'm seeing my relationships with others through that lens, then I'm not seeing them through the lens of love. I'm seeing them through the lens of greed. What it is I get out of this. You know, who is it? The monkey, those famous theologians, the monkeys. Who said, I thought love was more or less a given thing. But it seems the more I gave, the less I got. So I'm not getting back. I'm not getting back enough. So we got a problem here. So if you have that kind of self focused lens through which you see your relationships. You are not seeing those relationships through the lens of biblical love. I've given you this working definition of love. I remind you that love is doing what is in the best interest of another. But of course that doing is all preceded by thinking how I think about that person and what they need, but it's doing what's in their best interest. Contrary to the monkeys, it's not getting, it's giving. So this is how we know what love is, 1 John 3.16. Jesus Christ laid down his, that's 1 John 3.16. There's John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave, but there's 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for others. That's a others-focused, then, view of relationships. That's what biblical love, then, is about. And 1 Corinthians 13 is called the love chapter, written to, as I pointed out last week, a bunch of self-centered folks. and famously verse 4 says and this is what's read this you know if, if you I don't want to need a show of hands but I'd be willing to wager that a number of you had these four verses read at your wedding because this is a passage that is read at lots of weddings and it's a beautiful passage indeed but verse 4 says love is patient love is kind it does not envy it does not boast It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. We saw last week that there are a number of things that will keep us from loving in that way. And I listed some of those for you. Self-selfishness, pride, self-righteousness, insecurity, jealousy, prejudice, a lack of forgiveness. Those are just some of the things that can harm our relationships, all of which are opposite the antithesis of what we read in 1 Corinthians 13. And so what I'd like to do and I asked you last week is what is the what is the antidote to those things? What is the answer to those things? Pride and selfishness and self-righteousness and insecurity and so on. And the and the simple answer to, simple but profound answer to that is is the gospel. The gospel answers every one of those. So what I'd like to do in our remaining time is I would like to encourage us to develop gospel-centered thinking. Thoughts matter. How we think about ourselves and how highly we think about ourselves will affect the way we think about God and others, whether or not we see them as tools. So I'm encouraging us then to, to develop gospel-centered thinking. And then let's see how that gospel-centered thinking affects these areas that get in the way of our relationships, being what God wants them to be. The pride, the selfishness, the self-righteousness, and so on. So remember what the gospel is. The gospel is good news. And if you want to get a thorough biblical definition of the gospel... I would encourage you to read the first three chapters of the book of Romans. And in particular, I would encourage you to go through Romans chapter 3 and verse 26. And you will get a thorough definition of the gospel. But let me summarize. Now, why do I say Romans chapters 1 through 3 are a presentation of the gospel? Well, here's why because the theme verse of the 16 chapters of the book of Romans is found in chapter 1 and verse 16. Chapter 1 and verse 16, where Paul, who wrote it, says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And the reason I'm not ashamed of the gospel is because it is the power of God for everyone who believes. And then verse 17 goes goes on to say that this believing is that is is appropriated from first to last from beginning to end by faith by believing in a righteousness that comes outside of myself the gospel is good news and the good news is this That there's a righteousness, not of my own, but comes outside of myself. Now, here's why that's great news. Because Paul goes on with the very next verse, verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, to say, for, because, here's why that's good news. The wrath of God is being revealed against all of the ungodliness of men and women who suppress the truth by their ungodliness then he goes on to talk about in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 about the fact that we are all Jew and Gentile alike under sin. So he introduces the theme of the book saying the theme of this book is the, the gospel, the good news. But here's why it's good news, because in the gospel, a righteousness from God is made known, a righteousness from God is given. And here's why that's good news, because you ain't got no righteousness. Rest of chapter 1, chapter 2, beginning of chapter 3. And you all remember how chapter 3 goes. You get to verse 9, and Paul says after he's laid all that, well, what shall we say about all of this? And then he says, as it is written, and he goes on to quote, I think it's 18 quotations from the first part of your Bible to show That this sin issue is not something new. This has been the case going all the way back to the beginning. It's true of Jews. It's true of Gentiles. And having proven that with all of those quotations. Famously comes to chapter 3 and verse 23. That says all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. Now. All have sinned, that's the bad news, but here's here's the good news. In chapter 3 and verse 21 of Romans, chapter 3 and verse 21, chapter 3 and verse 21, it says, but now a righteousness from God has been made known. It's a righteousness to which the law and the prophets point, they testify to. And then he goes on to point out that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But this righteousness that's outside of ourselves comes from Jesus Christ. And comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. And this righteousness is given from outside of ourselves to all of those who believe. So that's what the gospel is. It's the good news seen against the very dark and stark bad news. That I've got no hope because I'm sold under sin because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God but in God's grace he's given a righteousness that I can't manufacture, I can't come up with. And he's given that righteousness in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's given freely to all of those who believe. Okay, everybody good with that? Now, the way we package that, we package the gospel, that's the good news, most of us could rehearse that, and we see that as a transaction that takes place at some point in our lives, but we don't see it as a transformation. We see it as a transaction, but not a transformation. Okay, yep, you've convinced me, I'm a sinner, Jesus is the righteousness that I don't have, Give me some of that Jesus stuff. Where do I have to sign up? You tell me I need to pray a prayer? Okay, I'll pray a prayer. And now that's supposed to result in a transformation. That transaction, that conversion, is supposed to result in a difference now in my life. And a large part of that difference is that all of those facts I just rehearsed about the gospel should have an impact on how I see myself and how in turn I see God and others. If I really see myself as completely hopeless morally and ethically, if I really do see myself as in need of a righteousness outside of myself, which is the good news of the gospel, let's get back to our list now. Where does pride fit into that? What happened to your pride? Where is boasting now? And Paul asks that question in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And he says, Let him who boasts do what? Boast in the Lord. So what do I really deserve according to the good news of the gospel? What I really deserve is the justice for my own lack of righteousness, which would place me squarely in hell. But it's the good news of God's grace that I've been given the righteousness of Christ outside of myself. Then how in heaven's name can I be a prideful person? And lay out for you my resume. Or worse yet, lay out for God my resume. And how good I am. Paul in Philippians says, I have a... By the way, he says, you know, I've got a really good resume. And he lays out his resume. And he says, you know, I was born of the tribe of Benjamin... I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees as it pertains to the law. I was blameless. I have all of these things on my resume. You want to compare resumes? Bring it on, says Paul. And he goes on to say, guess guess what all that means? I count all of that as loss, as nothing compared to knowing Christ. So where do you, where do I have room for pride in light of a gospel-centered approach to thinking? Zero. Nada. So what does gospel-centered thinking do to my pride? It eliminates it. What does it do to my self-righteousness? You know, this is the stuff you do. I mean, think about think about your marital adjustment sessions. You know, your family's like mine. We've, Kim and I have never had an argument. We've had several marital adjustment sessions, okay? So think about your marital adjustment sessions. And the fact is that some of those, and maybe a lot of those, have included, you do this. You always do this. And there's a self-righteousness about the accusations that I make against you because implied in that is there's what you do and, of course, look at what I do. And gospel-centered thinking has no place for this kind of self-righteousness. Think about insecurity that dominates our relationships sometimes. Insecurity takes a lot of forms. One form that it takes is people-pleasing. I'm insecure in my status. I'm getting my identity from other people. And if I get my identity from other people rather than my identity from the gospel, an identity in the gospel says I'm a child of God. And I have the most... Privileged position in the world, in the universe, that I've been seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, Ephesians 1 and verse 3. I'm secure in Jesus. I'm not finding my identity in you or in somebody else. But if you are, you're going to be insecure. And you'll continually be trying to please that person or persons. And it's a form of the verse I mentioned last week. Proverbs 29, 25. Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man. The reverence for the opinions of people. People pleasing is the fear of man. And we only have the fear of man... If we're not secure in our identity in the gospel. So you think about the stuff you do. You think about the things you do and why you do them. And some of you may be busy as beavers. Doing all kinds of good stuff. But listen to me dear friend. You can be doing all kinds of good things and not have rest in the gospel. Because you're trying to perform in order to be accepted by people. And then lastly, because it's 12 and 30 seconds. And I hear the beeps go off on your watches out there. Some of you turn them up so I can hear them. So I'm aware. And you always do this. A little of my self-righteousness coming out there. But not only are we trying to find very often our identity in what other people think about us. Now hear this. We're trying to make God like us by the stuff we do. And here's, here's one of the many great things about the gospel. The gospel is the only message in the world Where you get the verdict before the performance. Now, do you understand what I'm saying? With every other message, in every other religion, in every other relationship, you get the verdict after you've done the stuff, after you've performed. But in the gospel, God renders the verdict on you before the performance. And he does that so that as you perform, you are to perform, you are to serve, you are to please God. I am to please God. But I'm doing that in the context of a secure identity where God has given his verdict about me. That I am blessed in the heavenly realms in Christ. And that heaven is my guaranteed home. And that God is my father for eternity. And Christ is my brother, and I am in the heavenly family. And come what may, that will not change. Thanks be to God. Now I can serve God not out of fear. Now I can serve God not for what I get, but I serve God for what I've been given. And I can rest. And that's why Jesus, one of the reasons Jesus is then able to say in this gospel-centered thinking, Come to me, all of you, who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Because in every other approach, other than in Christ and in the gospel, it's all about what you do. Now, friends, you can go through every one of those, and you apply an understanding of the gospel to those, and it's the antidote, it's the answer to that kind of thinking about ourselves, which in turn then gives rise to, to how I think about you, how I think about God, and then how I interact with you. All right, let's ask God to help us to think that way this week. Think about the gospel and think about how it applies to those areas of pride, self-righteousness, selfishness, insecurity, lack of forgiveness, all of those, okay? Father, thank you for this blessed day. Thank you for the gospel, the good news. That Jesus Christ has done for us what we could not do for ourselves, and that in Him you have supplied a righteousness that we do not have. That He has absolutely perfect righteousness, and that you, in your grace, freely apply that righteousness to us when we come to Him believing who He is and what He has done. Thank you for the transformation then that that makes. A transformation wrought by the work of your Holy Spirit working through the teaching of your word to motivate us, enable us, and give us the desire to become like Christ. But a change wrought as well by an understanding of the essential truths that comprise this good news message, that I have no righteousness of my own, that I deserve eternal punishment for the sin that I personally have committed, And that it is only by the grace of God that I am breathing now, that I'm alive now. And certainly only by the grace of God that I have an eternal relationship with the Father. And so, Lord, that then removes boasting. It removes pride. It transforms the way I think about myself and in turn then how I see others. No longer are they tools, but they are opportunities now. For me to interact with them and show the love of Christ to them, to do what's in the best interest of others. I pray, Lord, that you would help each of us here then to think on these things, to think about the truth of the gospel and how it applies to how I view myself, how then I view you, and how I view others. Help us today and this week to think in those terms, and may it have a tangible effect, a real effect in the way we interact with one another, and the way that we think about ourselves and find comfort for ourselves. Go with us this week, we pray. Grant us safety until next week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.